Good morning. <clears throat> I'm waiting for the signal that my mic is in the wrong spot because I'm <clears throat> not an expert at this. My name's Andy. Uh, sorry for my accent. I'm from the extreme southern part of Canada, also known as the United States of America. Um, Canada seems friendlier currently, so we'll just claim that. Um, I work on campus with a student organization called the Navigators. Um, we help students to know Christ, learn how to make him known, and then help others do the same. And uh, it's the joy of Catherine and I, my wife, um, to engage with students on campus um, and to engage them over the scriptures. As, as Rowan said, we're continuing on this morning in the Gospel of Luke, and that's the habit here at Auckland DV. Um, with some exception, but week after week, we open whatever passage of the Bible we stopped on last week and move to the one ahead. And part of the reason that we do that is that we believe the Bible is the Word of God and that it's authoritative and sufficient for all needs of all peoples and all places at all times. We also believe that it applies uh, for those needs at all places, all peoples, and all times. I was thinking about that as, we, um, as I started digging into this passage um, a simple outline for the entire Bible would be God, guilt, grace, gratitude. Um, that's quite an old outline. Um, and really, as we're engaging with the scriptures, if that's not what we're seeing, if we're not seeing a picture of God that draws us to worship, an understanding of ourselves that leads from our guilt to repentance, a picture of grace that allures us to Christ by faith, and then an understanding of how we live a life of gratitude. If those aren't the things we're seeing, we need to keep looking and keep wrestling, keep poking and keep asking questions. And sometimes we interact with passages that seem confusing at first. And to me, this passage was that. If you were here last week, you would have heard Jesus deal quite handily um, with the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers at what was probably the most awkward dinner party in history. Um, so Jesus gets invited into a Pharisee's home, one of the religious elite. Um, Rowan called them the bigwigs, I think, um, but one of the religious elite. And not long into the conversation, he just starts laying into them over the character of their heart and exposing what's really going on and imploring them, I think, to repent and trust in him. We then get the context um, that they were kind of frustrated by this and that Jesus' ongoing ministry from this point forward, as it's pictured in Luke, is going to be partially defined by the Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers trying to trip him up. They're looking for the opportunity to catch him in a situation where he puts his foot in his mouth, I think partially so they can say, see, not really that good, is he? Just stepped in it right there. And so they're chasing him and, and trying to entrap him, presenting questions that they find tricky that Jesus deals with quite easily, presenting situations, hoping that he's going to stumble and go against Caesar, but he, he works his way through it all. And then we reach our text uh, for today, which starts with the phrase, in these circumstances. So in the midst of Jesus trying to be entrapped, in the midst of Jesus trying to be found out as being inauthentic or a hypocrite, we come to this specific event. In these circumstances, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. I don't know if you've ever seen a crowd like this that's ready to trample itself and doesn't care who else is in its way to get what it wants. 
But I would find that quite terrifying. That would be what the forefront of my attention is. It sounds crazy. People clambering to be around Jesus. And here Jesus begins to take it all in. His disciples, I I presume, must have been thinking, finally, right? Finally, the crowd is beginning to notice how great Jesus is. This must be success. This must be where we're going. This must be what it's all about. Crowds clambering to come to the one I follow, Jesus. But what is success? If success walked into the room, what would it look like? has to depend on your circumstances, right? So if you're a parent shopping for a Christmas present, you might have taken advantage of these Black Friday sales that seems to be imported from my country to yours. Um, I don't know why you would import that, right? Of all the things you could bring over. Well, what was the Harvey Norman ad was like, America's greatest retail event in New Zealand. Pass. Strong pass. But if that's, if that's your chance to, to get a sale, then that's success. Black Friday shopping. Get it done. If you're an Adele fan, perhaps you experienced the thrill of success getting your tickets this week. They sold out in like 20 minutes. Or if you're Adele, perhaps that's success. I sold out three stadium concerts to people I don't even know who paid $100 a ticket just to hear me sing. Success. But if Adele's success is the standard for success, I guarantee you I will never be successful. I could even give away that many tickets, right? If I started singing, you guys would leave and like neighborhood cats would start coming in like, yeah, what's that sweet sound we hear? But I would never be successful. If Bill Gates' wealth is the standard of success, who gets to be successful? What is success? In what arena can we put it to where it's actually meaningful to real-life, everyday people world-round? Or is success that thing that that one guy did that one time and everybody else clambered for? If you were an itinerant Jewish preacher, perhaps a crowd clambering over itself would be your picture of success. Jesus didn't see it that way. I think Jesus has a different measure of success that he was looking for in the people he was investing in and that he's imploring to us today to live lives of faithfulness. Guaranteed it will include crowds. Guaranteed it will include a massive crowd, innumerable from all tribes, peoples, nations, and languages. But it will be a crowd for the right reasons. Because Luke makes a shift. In the middle of this crowd, many thousands clambering and trampling one another, Jesus begins to say to his disciples first. Jesus isn't afraid of the masses that are about to trample one another. He turns and has a side conversation with his disciples. And I'm positing this morning that Jesus is painting a clear picture of success, both for his ministry and for our following of him. His goal for them is that they'd live this picture. And this picture of success has to do with avoiding hypocrisy, fearing God, and confessing Christ and your faith in him, regardless of the circumstances. Jesus is laying out for them a view of success about living with integrity, worshiping and revering God instead of those things that are not God. 
and acknowledging or confessing Christ no matter where you are or what that situation takes you to. Avoiding hypocrisy. He began to say to his disciples first, I'm reading from verses 1 to verse 3. I was uh, late getting my slides in, so there aren't any. He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing covered that won't be uncovered. There's nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in an ear in a private room will be proclaimed on the housetops, which is like outdoor living space back then. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Essentially, Jesus is looking at this crowd and turning to his disciples saying, I hope you know this isn't what it's about. It's not about always getting the biggest crowd. It's not about saying whatever you need to say to please the people that are standing in front of you. His movement will not be Phariseeism 2.0. It's not the upgraded software that gets over the law but nitpicks everything else. That treats its own standards one way just so that everyone thinks well of you. Because the Pharisees clamber over one another. They trample over one another, trying to make it to the top of the pile. There's a few interesting things here. First, hypocrisy, which we talked about last week, Rowan focused in on. It's something we have to guard against. Not something you just don't do, but something you have to actively guard against. Jesus is saying this life that the Pharisees live will infect you. He calls it yeast or leaven, that which permeates throughout and changes what it touches. It has to be guarded against. Why? I think it's attractive to be thought well of. Everybody wants to be complimented. And so if all it takes for me to get complimented is say the right thing or not have a certain problem or smile when the right people look or don't look, it it feels nice. It's easy to be hypocritical. But Jesus says their success has to be defined by something else. He thought this was so important that he just pushes a crowd of many thousands to the side so that he can have this conversation. So important is it that they live with integrity. And Jesus really unveils the truth about hypocrisy. Everything will be revealed. There will be a day, sometimes it happens not too long uh, after the hypocritical act, But I think Jesus has a longer perspective here, thinking about the coming judgment, when he says everything will be revealed. What you've said in the dark will be proclaimed in the light. What you've whispered in an ear in a private room will be proclaimed from the housetops. Everything will be revealed. Which can be taken two ways, right? This is a really scary, frightful thing if you're juggling a lot of lies and your lies are going to get brought out. That's a horrifying picture. Everything will be revealed. Or, if you're living a life of quiet integrity and faithfulness, and you may not have the front stage auditorium voice and opportunity, but you're living this faithful witness out, that's quite a beautiful thing to know that everything will be revealed. It can be negative or it can be positive, depending on how you're living. It should motivate us in both of those ways, I think. 
because it too will be made known. We deal with this pull. I feel like I deal with this pull to hypocrisy all the time. I may be the only one in the room, but I highly doubt that. And a key question for me is, what do I do when I mess up? Let's just do a simple exercise here. Everybody look left. Everybody look right. Wow, all their heads turned at once. That's great. Oh, no, there was a point. Sorry. Biblically speaking, everybody you just looked at and yourself will mess up in one way, shape, or form today. At some point today, you will have the opportunity to decide, what do I do when I say a word I shouldn't have said, when I want something that somebody else has, when I worship something that isn't God as God, what do I do? I think this is generally the greatest opportunity to fight against hypocrisy. Will we argue our way out? It wasn't that bad. You should have seen what he did. That was rough. That guy. can't believe that guy. Will you quick throw on a mask made of words? Well, I didn't really mean it. It was just kind of like, you know, it just kind of slipped out. It wasn't a wasn't a word. It wasn't really angry. I just decided to make an angry face because I thought it was funny. Yeah? Or will you say, now you see me as I truly am? Yeah. I'm angry and I lie sometimes and I struggle with wanting things that other people have and worshiping things that aren't God. And I need forgiveness and I'm sorry for hurting you. And we pray and Ask that God would help both of us grow in this. What do we do when we mess up? My question further is, how do we avoid and die to this? Because I don't think this is something that we just sort of like, uh, yep, hypocrisy, and walk away from. I think it's something that actually needs to die. And I think that knowing that everything will be revealed probably isn't the answer. I think it matters that you know that your, hypocr- your hypocrisy will be exposed, but I don't think that's the answer. On the surface, we may think, oh, if I just remember, you know, live each day as if everything you do will be in the, in the light, not in the dark. Live each day as if everything you ever say will be proclaimed from the housetops. That's a good thought. Motivate yourself by that thought. Stir yourself up to live that life but I don't think that will be the answer as to how to do that. I don't think that will be the answer to how we do that because I think, <clears throat> I think we're made from different stuff than that. I think what's going on inside each one of us is different than just needing post-it note reminders to live a certain way. And I think we suffer from a different ailment than that. I don't think that our biggest problem is that we tend to forget the little things like everything will be revealed or what's Oprah's phrase, live each day like it will be your last. I don't think those sorts of reminders change lives. They sell books, they make talk shows, they produce podcasts, but I don't think it changes lives. Then what do we do? Because certainly nobody wakes up Right? If you come to my daughter, Grace, she's three and a half, and you hand her a piece of paper and a crayon and say, Grace, why don't you draw what you want to be when you grow up? She's not going to like make squiggly lines, and then you'll come and be like, whoa, whoa okay, what's that? She's not going to say, a hypocrite! I've yeah! That's not what's going to happen, right? It's going to be a mommy or a teacher or a nurse. It's going to be whatever profession she just saw somebody else doing. But it's never going to be a hypocrite. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, 
going to hypocrite it up today. Going to be sweet. Nobody does this. No person steeped in living a double life, balancing the plates of all their different lies, walks around saying, why doesn't everyone do this? This is where it's at. That house of cards will fall. Jesus tells us exactly how we avoid this hypocrisy, hypocrisy, not hypocrisy. He says it has to do with what we fear. Verse 4, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body as they watch a crowd pseudo trample on itself. Don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing. I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. I think this is the main portion of of the answer on how to avoid, guard yourself from, and live a life free from hypocrisy. I think this fits with a bigger picture of success and faithfulness that Jesus is living and Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples. Because the key question with success is success in whose eyes? Success in whose eyes? There are very few things that the world objectively views as successful. I'm not sure I can name them. But Jesus is supplying here not, a different, not just a different definition of success, but a different audience to succeed with, a different group to be concerned by, a group of one, the one worth fearing. So I think most of the hypocrisy we're drawn to comes from trying to please someone or even to please a notion of ourselves in our own head. I'm not the kind of guy that would struggle with that, so therefore we're not going to talk about this. I'm not the kind of guy that would have just inappropriately gotten upset with his daughter because she wasn't listening the 45th time you told her to eat her dinner. I'm not that guy, so we're not going to talk about that. By the way, I am that guy. I get really frustrated, and I'm working on it, and I'm praying. And Catherine is reminding me of my failings in a good way. But this type of hypocrisy overflows from a heart that's worshiping something that's not God as God. This type of hypocrisy, why do I keep saying hypocrisy? Hypocrisy flows from the idolatries of the world. Rowan is just chuckling at me. Um, Jesus says, I'll show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell. Jesus is saying, you have no idea what real power is. You have no idea what real authority is. Real authority is not to take a life. Real authority is to deal with a life after it's been taken. Real authority is to have that level of judgment and power. Fear him. It might strike us as strange to talk about fear and fearing God. right? In our PC world, we, we we don't deal with that. We deal with, you know, well, God's just really loving. God's just really merciful. But when we get this picture of the fear of God, it's a rich biblical picture that flows from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And when we're talking about fear, it's not fear like little Lucy had running from the dog. It's not fear that somebody might have if they go home and somebody in their house is drunk and mean and violent. It's not that kind of fear. 
God is not some erratic person that we run from. The fear of God, and if you've never studied this concept before, I'd encourage you, look up all the verses that talk about the fear of God and give them a read. Because the fear of God as a phrase is one of the main ways that the Old Testament sums up worship. The fear of God is commanded. The fear of God is encouraged. The fear of God is commended when it's seen. And it's talked about in a way that sounds a lot like Old Testament faith. To an Israelite who Jesus is talking to, saying fear God wouldn't have meant run like your life depends on it. It would have meant hold in reverence or awe, worship, fear him, worship this. Allow this to be the thing that guides your decisions and shapes your life. Give greater weight and attention to what God has said, what God has promised, and what God is doing than what the people and institutions and objects around you have. I have a book on my nightstand that I've been trying to get to to, to in reading for most of this year. It's called Awe, A-W-E. And there's a series of questions in the section on the fear of man that, that, as I was reading through it, kind of struck me. Why do we ride the roller coasters of people's responses to us? Why do we fixate on the appreciation of one particular person? Why are we willing to compromise our convictions to get someone to accept us? Why do we rehearse conversations over and over in our head in obsessive regret Why do we live in the fear of actually being known? And to the degree that we get our identity from the people around us and not from God and his awesomeness, to that degree you're a sitting duck for the fear of man. And I'll add, for hypocrisy. The author's name is Paul Tripp, Tripp with two Ps. See, Jesus knows the suffering he's going to face. And Jesus moves forward with joy. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. Why? Because he fears God and not the people around him. And this is the life we're to live. A life that worships God over and above everything that's not God. A life that listens first to his voice and not the crowd around us. Jesus gives a further motivation and encouragement to fear God. Verse 6, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? I don't know. (laughs) Apparently they were. That's a great deal. I'm in the sparrow business pretty soon at that rate. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not even one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all numbered and counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The first time I read that, I had to debate, is it a compliment to be worth more than many sparrows? Like, aren't most things worth more than a couple pennies? I don't know. (laughs) It feels like a no-brainer. But the line to not forget is that God knows every sparrow. They're not worthless to him. How much more than are you worth it to God, worthwhile? Jesus is saying, rest in his loving care. Pay attention to him because he cares for you. Pay attention to him because he knows everything about you. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. 
Don't bend to the one that would gladly trample you if it had something else it wanted to clamber for. Bend to the one who cares for you and is inviting you into his loving, restful care. Jesus is saying, fear God, worship God, and then you can live a life of integrity that will flow from this. Jesus is pointing out that the fear of God as sort of the weed killer that destroys the roots of this sin in our heart. My yard is riddled with weeds. Why? Because I don't ever use weed killer. I just come by with a weed whacker and the lawnmower every other week and just flatten it down. And two days later, weeds. Jesus is offering the weed killer to a life of integrity that will allow you to escape from this trap, this trap of hypocrisy that infects and overtakes, much like it did the Pharisees. But what would this life of integrity look like? First and foremost, I think Jesus is defining a life of integrity by worshiping God and by confessing Christ. He continues in verse 8, I say to you, Anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, which is a biblical title for the Messiah, Jesus, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. These are loaded verses, eh? Ones that should hit us as weighty. We should read these lines and and pause and stop. Anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge. Whoever denies me before men will be denied. That's a promise. That's a fact what will happen, will be denied before the angels of God. The simple message that Jesus is getting across is that to acknowledge him results in his acknowledging of you. To deny him means he will deny you. But the the hinge here is faith and a profession of that faith, an open acknowledgement of your relationship with Jesus by faith is acknowledging Christ. And that's the hinge point between how Jesus deals with you. Seems like Jesus has judgment on his mind. Think back to verses 2 and 3. Everything will be revealed. What you say in the dark will be proclaimed in the light. What you whisper in an ear in the private room of your house will be proclaimed from the housetops. Verses 4 and 5, fear the one who has authority to cast into hell after death. And here in verse 8 and 9, acknowledged, you will be acknowledged if you acknowledged, you will be denied if you deny before the angels of God. People, judgment is real. We don't think about this much, but it's real. Jesus isn't laying out a fourfold appeal system. He's not pitching away for name suppression and a way to get past what you've done. He's saying judgment is real. It's a plain fact. Jesus isn't being manipulative and using scare tactics. Jesus is stating plain reality. Plain reality. 
plain reality we need to not lose perspective of. I feel like these verses can hit us hard and stir up lots of questions. How much acknowledgement is enough? How much denial is enough? Have I denied him? I think I kind of did that one time. I said that one thing, but what does that mean? And you can go back and forth over all these things. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? What's an unforgivable sin? Have I done that? We should ask these questions, and we should wrestle with these things. But let me clarify that parsing these answers down to the nth degree so that you have a balanced scale between acknowledge and denial and how you fall on it isn't what Jesus is saying. That's what the Pharisees are saying. That's the life they lived, counting their leaves and their fruit so they know how to tithe them, counting their acknowledgments and denials so they know where they stood. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying lay out some grid that you can put every circumstance and experience of your life through. That's the leaven of the Pharisees trying to seep in. So we should wrestle with these things. And if we are denying Christ and we, we see that, we should stop. If we're refusing to acknowledge, stop. If you've done it in the past, now's the time to turn from that and come to him for mercy and forgiveness. If you're worried about having committed the unforgivable sin, that's fine, worry. But now is the time to put that worry to rest and put your faith in Christ. Let's consider a, a couple of key biblical fi figures. Let's consider Peter and Paul. Not too long after this event in, in Luke 12, there will be another crowd clambering to get to Jesus. This time not to hear his words, but to inflict judgment upon him, to punish him, accuse him, and kill him. Jesus will be beaten and crucified based on a lie, having done nothing wrong. And Peter, one of his closest friends, will come along in that crowd to try and see what happens. While he's there, he'll be recognized and people will come and say, uh, sorry, aren't you with him? The one that's currently being beaten and tried? No. No. Even a little girl comes to Peter. Can you imagine lying to a little girl? Shame. Even a little girl. Sorry, isn't that the one you follow? No, I don't know him. I don't know him. Get away. Those will be Peter's words. Peter denies knowing Christ denies following him three times over. Yet, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter throws himself at his feet. Depart from me. I'm not worthy. And Jesus restores him, and Peter lives a life of faith founded on Christ in his death and his resurrection. Peter becomes one of the leaders of the first Christian churches, a writer of the New Testament. He had denied Christ but he had not committed the unforgivable sin. Similarly, there's a man named Saul who is a vehement persecutor, persecutor of the church who is zealously and literally hunting down Christians, trying to capture them, imprison them, and kill them. On one such journey, he encounters the risen Christ and he comes to faith. He then goes on to plant churches, to witness, to profess boldly before Roman courts and tribunals, and to write a big part of the New Testament. He had not 
committed this unforgivable sin. The point that Jesus is making is that to persist until your death in a refusal to believe on Christ is unforgivable. To not come to Jesus for forgiveness is unforgivable. And if you're worried about not having done that, do that today. Because the promise of Scripture, time and time again, is that Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient to remove the sins and make one right before God for everyone who believes on Jesus, who comes to him in faith. Have you done that? Believe that. He will cast out no one who comes to him by faith. And I'm happy to talk for hours if you'd like to look through the scriptures to see these promises. I would love to do that. Rowan would love to do that. Your connect group leader, the person that invited you, they would love to walk through the Bible. The Bible is absolutely clear. To blaspheme the Spirit is to obstinately continue in unbelief in spite of all that the Bible has to say about Jesus. But for those who do confess Christ, who do proclaim and acknowledge him, Jesus is basically saying persecution will come. That's why we're having this conversation. It will not always be crowds clambering over one another to hear your words. Persecution will come. Not equally to all and not always, but we should never be surprised when it does. That's how they treated Jesus. That's how they will treat us. Jesus says, when it does, don't panic. God will care for you. The Holy Spirit himself will teach you in that very hour what to say. We could look at Peter and Paul again throughout the book of Acts to see this happen. The book of Acts is riddled with them getting brought into situations before a court or the Jewish leadership or wherever they're at, the people rioting against them, and them just pouring forth, here's, here's my witness. Church history is filled with people, and sometimes the only answer that you have is the word yes. There was a high schooler in 2001 shot in the, at a high school in Colorado, a Columbine shooting. And the gunman came into the room with the question, are there any Christians in here? And a girl stood up from under the desk and said, yes. And that was the last thing she ever did. But the Holy Spirit gave her the word in that moment not to deny, but to confess Christ. It may not be eloquent, but it will be there, and you can rest in that. I think this, too, is a way to avoid hypocrisy, obviously, to proclaim the truth. But as we fear God, as we worship him alone, we're freed from these traps. And over time, as we confess Christ, we gain more strength to continue confessing Christ and professing him to others. Because I've done it in the past, I know I can do it again. The fear of God is the weed killer that destroys it, and the ongoing confession is the strength that you need to keep uprooting it when it seeps back in. And we need to be, as Christians, openly professing our faith in Christ. Think about this. Even from this passage, we have the message that by faith frees you from the rat race of living for others. We have the message that allows you to stand in the final judgment and not be cast aside. We have the message that allows you to come to the one 
who knows even the hairs on your head and be cared for and pardoned. We, we have the message about the one to whom we can stand in awe of, the only one truly deserving of the word awesome. When I was in university, I'm thinking about how to move forward in this life. When I was in university, um, there was a mentor, an, an older man that was connected with the navigators there who'd been a lifetime missionary to different parts of Africa. His name was Ron. And um, Ron was speaking at a men's conference, <clears throat> and he was in his mid-60s. So he was sharing stories about how he'd seen God provide for him, what it meant to be a man, what it meant to live a life of faithfulness. And Ron looked at us and he said, you know, I'm actually quite afraid as I look at this group. And I thought, what do you mean? And Ron said, my greatest fear is that your charisma, your skills, your abilities, your relationships, your know-how, your training, your everything will propel you to a place in life that your character can't keep you. That was his greatest fear for us. Ron died two years ago in the back of a crowded van in rural Zimbabwe. He was back in Africa traveling out to a village. Sorry, I loved Ron. Traveling out to a village he'd helped build to provide for child-led families and to teach them how to farm and give them training to live as he also proclaimed the gospel. He had a heart attack and was simply too far away. The world might look at Ron's life and say, whoa, what an unknown failure of a life. But if that was failure, I'm ready to fail and fail hard. Because he lived a life of integrity like we're talking about. And Ron's words, I think, resonate deeply with what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're going to be propelled to places where persecution will come where others will be looking to you for life. And if you can't live a life of integrity and character, it's all going to come apart at the seams. This is Jesus' fear for the disciples. It's not really something he's afraid of because he's in control. But this is what he's saying. And ultimately, this is the picture of success. Avoiding hypocrisy by worshiping God and not things that aren't God. Fearing and listening to him instead of the world around us. And being open to who we are by faith in Christ. This is success. And this can be success for anyone. You don't have to be Adele. You don't have to be Bruce Springsteen. I don't know why I'm on musicians. You don't have to be successful in any way in the word's eyes. You just have to live for the audience of one. Christian, what defines your success? How will you move forward in life to live this picture of success? A deeper faith. If you're here today and you're not believing on Christ, if you're not acknowledging and professing him, have you met him? Have you seen him in his word today? Did you catch the warning throughout this passage? I'm sure some parts of the crowd around Jesus would have heard his words as well, just as we've done today. What will you do with them? Where will you turn now that you've heard? I implore you, don't miss these warnings because they're real. 
But I also implore you, don't miss these promises because they're real. Don't miss this one that you can stand in awe of by faith. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for your hope-bringing message um, to live a life founded on the worship of you and the open proclamation of who you are and what you've done to the standing on your word in spite of the circumstances around us and where that might take us, what that might mean and who might look at us in a different way. I pray you'd help us to live this vision of success and to be freed from this leaven of hypocrisy that destroys lives, destroys families, destroys communities. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing to the one we can stand in awe of um, about our need for him. Let's stand and sing.